0: Hello and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines—people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri, on June 13th, 2022 we talked with Jonathan Joyce, a graduate student at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and in State University. He received his bachelor's from Radford University, a master's of science at University of Florida, and a master's of public health from Virginia Tech. He has focused on studying neurotropic viruses and is currently investigating how SARS-CoV-2 infects components of the peripheral and central nervous system. All right. well thanks for talking with us today um why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: uh sure thing uh first of all thank you for having me on the podcast um i'm a fan i frequently listen to you when i'm in cell culture making plates or when i'm counting plaques so it's kind of cool to be able to be a, uh, a guest um so i'm jonathan joyce i'm a third year phd student in the translational biology medicine and health program at virginia tech uh here in blacksburg virginia and i work in the lab of dr Andre Burkin. And we're a neurovirology lab. So we focus in on viruses that can infect the nervous system.
0: Great. And can you tell us how or when you first became interested in sort of like science and then virology?
1: Oh, sure thing. Um, Kind of a convoluted story um, because I don't really have the, the classic like undergrad to grad school path. Um, I had some breaks in between. So, like I mentioned, I'm, I think I mentioned, I'm from this small town in Southwestern Virginia. Uh, It's called Bassett, it's the place where they make the furniture, or they used to anyway. And so it's a manufacturing town, um, kind of built around that, not really known for a lot of science, but I had some really great science teachers um, in spite of all that. And I kind of gravitated towards biology more than chemistry or physics for whatever reason, it just felt more relatable. And that kind of started, uh, me down the path of being interested in biology. And I wasn't really sporty, wasn't really outdoorsy. That's what you do where I'm from. So I just kind of stayed in books all the time. And when I was 10, nine or 10 years old or so, um, my mom uh, joined the local volunteer rescue squad. And uh, I just kind of hung around the rescue squad. And EMS is way more familial than you might think. So I grew up with a bunch of other kids and set in on ENT courses and volunteered to be a patient. And I got to see people of assessing the human body in these different disease processes and applying biology in real time so that got me interested um virology came a little bit later but that's what started me down the way uh, of just being interested in applying biology to like people's health
0: great and can you tell us then a little bit more detail about sort of your undergrad and how you got into your graduate school experience how did you choose your schools and then your lab
1: oh sure thing And that's where the the circuitous roundabout way of my academic life goes, uh, as you could probably tell. So when I graduated high school, um, like I said, the town was pretty much built on on textiles and industry. Uh, So either you stayed there and worked in a factory or joined the military or you went to college. So I already had this background um, in, in health and biology. So it made sense that I would go and be a biology major somewhere and probably go to med school because that was the most logical thing to do. And I looked around and I uh, ended up doing my undergrad at Radford University, which was about 60 miles from home, about an hour and 15 minutes up the road. So I was close enough to where I could come back home um, and work and run rescue and teach when I wanted to, but far enough away to be an undergrad and kind of get to have that experience. So I went to Radford um, mainly because of the campus size. It was small enough to where you could have like one on one interactions with faculty, um, but big enough to where you could just be kind of a face in the crowd if you wanted to be. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do as far as my biology concentration was concerned. And thanks to some amazing professors, um, and this is a shout out to anyone who does undergrad teaching, um, through general biology, taught by uh, Dr. Charles Kugler and my micro and molecular professor, Georgia Hammond, and then immunology, uh, Dr. Mary Roberts, and then parasitology, Dr. Sam Zekas. I was able to figure out that it wasn't so much the human side of things that was really interested to me. It was the pathogens that made us sick. That was what made me interested. And about the time I had that realization, uh, the department hired an amazing professor who the head for a while, Dr. Justin Anderson. He was a virologist. And that course actually really got me interested in virology. And he was looking for undergrad help to set up his lab. So I went in and pitched myself um, to him and, and through some very, very consistent convincing, uh, I convinced him to take a, a chance on me. And I joined his Radford Arbovirus and Medical Entomology Lab, and the very first uh, virus I worked on was lacrosse, so an Arbovirus, and not only an Arbovirus, but a neurotropic Arbovirus. So we started to look uh, to figure out the, the receptor on the midgut of the mosquito to figure out how it got in and how it got out into the, the hemolymph of the mosquito. Um, didn't really have much uh, luck with that. So we turned to look at interactions between lacrosse and the microbiota of the mosquito midgut. So I got to you know work with viruses and mosquitoes and bacteria and culture and, and sequencing. And that was just the coolest thing to me and uh through work in dr anderson's lab i got to go to my first conference have my first paper and that sold it i was done i was sold um of course i wasn't the best undergrad i wasn't that focused before i found what i wanted to do and i I figured that out pretty late in the game um, and realized i needed to go to grad school but i didn't really have a gpa to back that up um, since i would kind of killed some time so i had to go out and get a job i had to go into industry I figured that would make the most sense somehow to kind of bone out my bona fides, so to speak. So I ended up working um, in a synthetic bio startup um, here locally in Blacksburg for a couple of years doing mostly cloning and plasmid construction stuff and worked myself right out of a job due to automation. And I went back to EMS to kill time. And about that time, I tried uh, to apply to grad school here at Virginia Tech. And Virginia Tech said, thanks, but no. So I kept working and found another job um, in a scientific advising and consulting firm. It was really cool. It worked with international scientists in the former Soviet Union to kind of help them take a project from soup to nuts, from like white paper to published paper at the end. And when I was there, they suggested, um, well, try grad school again. Why don't you? We'll even help you pay for it. Um, But find something you can do distant wise because you're still working. And I kind of, you know, kind of screwed up my face and curled my nose and thought, distance, are you sure? And of course, little did I know the pandemic would happen and we would all be doing learning distantly. And I found a program through the University of Florida and I fell in love. It is easily one of the best programs I've ever been affiliated with in my life. And it was a master's in medical microbiome and it was really host pathogen focused, which was exactly what I wanted. And as I got close to finishing that program, I realized even though I would have a master's behind my name, I hadn't really had any any additional research since undergrad, so I was going to need something to boost that with. So I was looking around locally, like where could I do, where could I go, how could I get that, and I ran across a master's public health here at Virginia Tech, and I thought that was like the perfect culmination of my interest, both lab science and how you can apply that to better the health of the public, so I paused. Um, the program through the University of Florida and enrolled at the uh, public health program here at Virginia Tech. And the cool thing about the program is that it's hosted um, by the Department of Population Health Science, which is actually in the vet school here. So how, like, one health can you be, right? You have animals, humans, the environment. It was perfect. So uh, I enrolled in the uh, MPH course here at Tech, Uh, put the uh, Gainesville uh, program on hold just to get my feet wet, realized I could do both, and then doubled up and did both until I finished the, uh, master's in, uh, the master's in medical microbiology and then focused on the master's in public health. And through that, I was lucky enough, um, they required that we do a, a practicum and then a capstone. And I completed my uh, practicum in the lab of Dr. Nisha Dubu here at Tech, who uh, also looks at flaviviruses and is an arbovirologist. virologist. So I got to work with Zika. And- And she was interested in looking at what drives the variable shedding of viral RNA in semen samples of men who were previously infected. So I got to work with uh, Dr. Dougal and and Zika specimens. And then um, for my capstone, I got to work in the lab of my advisor, Dr. Andrea Berg, who is my current advisor. And I got to work with a safety trial for a couple of live attenuated HSV vaccine candidates in a mouse model and after i was getting pretty close to being finished with that um we sat down and dr brady was like well what's your plan after you you finish i don't know teaching maybe She was like well you've already got now a second master's why don't you just go get a phd and i thought it never really occurred to me because phds seem like people in ivory hours who just have all the answers i know that's not true anymore but still so she suggested that i look around and tech has this gently uh just interdisciplinary program of uh, translational biology medicine and health where they try to take um findings from the bench and translate them into something that would benefit a patient in the real world and I thought that was perfect. Uh, so let me try my hand at that. And Dr. Berkey was like, well if you do then you can stay in my lab and you can keep working. So that's kind of how I found uh that lab um and have stayed ever since. I just kind of fell in love with uh just with the atmosphere and the camaraderie it was an incredibly open lab everyone on the floor for that matter is really open and collaborative and you can just bounce ideas off of anybody so um, that's how i ended up in this lab uh doing the work that i did I actually worked over that summer on a guinea pig model of zika virus infection looking at the neurotropism of the virus and then finished up that uh live attenuated vaccine study and then began work in this phd so it was a long road to get here but it's been interesting
0: yeah. Um, so I guess maybe, um, before you get into your PhD thesis, maybe, um, you can talk a little bit about sort of what you gain from doing your, your master's in public health. Like how did that perspective sort of help or shape you in a way, you know, some people have a master's in public health that do PhDs or MDs actually. Um, but not, not everyone does. So how did that kind of change the way that you think about maybe um virology or public health in general
1: absolutely totally totally right and uh, you know the interesting thing about the program that i was in um is that it's in a vet school so we ended up interfacing a lot with the vet students and some of the lecturers in the program were um lecturers in the vet school itself and, and we're even in the same building so you really had that kind of interplay and you really get to appreciate um like the epidemiological triangle you know as they say so you get to appreciate the pathogen the host and the environment and I had really just focused on the pathogen um even with with the arboviruses the mosquitoes were just a vector to get it to a person to infect them I didn't really consider them that much and having a master's in public health specifically in infectious diseases um which was the concentration I went for you really got to appreciate how everything is interconnected the the environment um, from which you find vectors and viruses, and then the virus, or in this case, pathogens themselves, and even the hosts and the factors that that can make a host susceptible. Like, what are the socioeconomic factors that go in to making this person vulnerable to this pathogen? And, of course, poverty plays a huge role. Um, and it gave me a really global perspective on things, um, not so much just this, like, developed world, kind of perspective of, oh, it really only matters if it hits us. It's like, well, no, this is global. I mean, you can hop on a plane anywhere and be anywhere in a day. And it really drove home like a global health perspective. And I think that little did I know um, that would serve me incredibly well in, in the very, very, very near future.
0: Right, right. So can you tell us then about your thesis work? Is there some of the big picture questions and then maybe some of the techniques that you use to actually do your studies?
1: Oh, sure thing. Um, so again, um, here in the, the lab of uh, Dr. Herky, we're a, a neurovermology lab and the lab's focus. Um, and this is what I had intended to focus on, um, given that I had, had done the live attenuated vaccine safety trials in, in mice and ultimately guinea pigs. Uh, we focus on HSV, so herpes simplex virus, specifically one and two. Um, and the, the driving like, question that the lab tries to get at is what factors are there that determine which neuronal populations can become infected by the virus, which populations then reactivate because it's not a one for one. And then what is the mechanism by which they activate? And is there a way that you can leverage that into some therapeutic to stop it? Like you're probably not gonna cure it, but can you at least stop it from reactivating and and causing lesions and causing pain and discomfort and distress and increasing your chance for say HIV or other infections like that? That was what I thought uh, I would be doing, um, but it changed a bit. And I've been, without intending to do it, worked with neurotropic viruses almost my entire careers. So I started with lacrosse. I, I went with Zika. I worked with herpes. So I was going to do kind of a broad panel um, review of what are all these different viruses that have you know different genomic backgrounds, different entry mechanisms how do they all get into the nervous system? And what do they do once they get there? That was at least the plan of what I was going to do until everything changed. Um, In our lab, we're actually pretty novel. It's actually kind of a cool um, system we work with. Since we look at neurotropic viruses, you need a source of cells. And a lot of people who do, say, herpes work use um, epithelial cells, which makes sense because that's the first cell line that the herpes virus is gonna to encounter to infect on you or your epithelial cells. Um, but they then quickly invade your nervous system. But not very many people work with proper neurons. You can use stem cells that you can differentiate or you can use um, neural-like lines they are cancerous, but not a lot of people use actual neurons. And we have the capacity in our lab to do primary neural culture. So we'll actually take um, neurons, ganglia out, of uh, mice or guinea pigs to associate them and they keep the neurons alive ex vivo for weeks on end so we can manipulate them. So that was a really cool technique to learn. And humorously enough, until I set foot in Dr. Birke's lab, I had never worked with animals in my life um, and had no intention to. Like, I don't even really eat that many animals anymore. My partner is a vegan. So I'm like, I can't even eat meat, let alone work with an animal. Um, so I kind of painted the wall for a year before I was, you know, wouldn't touch one. So uh, primary neural culture is a big thing for us. And then, of course, we're a molecular virology lab. So a lot of PCR, QPCR, RTQPCR, recently DDPCR. So all the PCRs. Um, there are friends of mine who are big on Western blotting and immunoprecipitation, which I've yet to master, but one of these days I will. And then a lot of immunostaining um, and microscopy techniques. So we're very much on the molecular side, either from the virus to the host or from the host to the virus, all things depending.
0: And when you say you're looking at sort of factors that um, affect the ability of HSV to infect certain neurons, is this um, viral factors or is this host factors?
1: Well, so that's a great question. Um, (laughs) I haven't gotten to get to that part of my PhD yet. I actually have two friends in my lab who look at both aspects of that. They look at one of the signaling cascades to figure out um, how the virus is reactivating different types of neurons. And then one looks at like viral uh, proteins and how they modulate the host response. Um, my plan originally was to um, look at what host factors, um, so entry proteins, or, or what what else, what have you, what receptors uh, or other uh, neuronal proteins exist in subpopulations of neurons that are one infected and two able to reactivate. Because again, not every neuron gets infected; about thirty percent do. Um, And of those, only a small fraction reactivate. So my goal was to figure out what those differences are. That was until the pandemic happened. Um, My program, my PhD program makes you rotate. So as I was finishing up the summer before, I was finishing up the summer before the fall, I was working on the the vaccine safety trial. And then I began my PhD. And the first year is basically intensive course. Well, the first semester is intensive coursework. And then you have to rotate through three labs to pick your final lab. Even though I knew what my lab was going to be, I still had to rotate. So when I rotated and I I finally ended up back in the lab from whence I began, the pandemic hit. And that shifted my focus from HSV to SARS-CoV-2. So I actually work on SARS-CoV-2 now. Um, And that in its own right was, was kind of an interesting thing because it took a minute to of course get the viral isolates, to, to get the mouse lines I work with, to get geared up for the BSL-3. So we actually were approached by um, a food safety scientist on campus who, would, had got, who had heard there was some money from USDA because they were curious, can this virus contaminate food and then infect people? Because a lot of the early um, outbreaks were kind of focused around food processing plants because of, you know, the close confines and lack of PPE. So, we had some food microbiologists, postdocs, come over to the lab to work with us, and they weren't virologists, so we had to kind of train them up. So, I actually ended up working early on with like SARS contamination of food, um, which was cool. I have no background in food safety, but I got to work with food microbiologists who do and train them how to, to work with um, viruses. And once, uh, whilst in the BSL 3, completely bored between waiting for the plaque assay absorption time we thought, well, we're having a debate about do you close the schools or close the bars? And we're like, well, close the schools, but we get the bars open. And we're like, well, we're in a college town. That's kind of a dumb idea. And we're looking at food with SARS. I wonder what happens if you drop SARS-CoV-2 in um, beer because people don't eat food alone. So we have this hilarious study that we did with SARS-CoV-2 contamination in in, in beers and wines and liquors. And then finally, um, we got geared up to actually look at what I look at which is uh, neuroinvasive potential SARS-CoV-2 in the peripheral and central nervous system.
0: Cool, and um, is this the work that you're gonna describe or talk about at ASV this summer?
1: Yes, it is indeed. Uh, so the work that I'm going to be talking about at um, ASV builds off of work uh, that was presented a little earlier at the Society for Neuroscience. We were just beginning to gear up and get some preliminary data from that we've kind of firmed up a lot of research there. So in a really quick nutshell um, and I'm sure you know this as well as I do, but one of the primary symptoms of SARS-CoV-2 infection is anosmia, right? So you lose your sense of smell and then you also lose your sense of taste and that's no fun. And early on in the pandemic, most everyone thought that was just because it's you know a respiratory virus and it's just inflammation and that's what it is. And our lab was like, well, maybe, but when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, and we're a neurovirus lab, and there are neurons in your nose that are responsible for smell. What if this virus goes up the olfactory sensory neurons and into the brain? What if it's neuroinvasive? So again, we we trained up for the BSL three. We got the the ACE mice in. We got virus in. We grew it up. We got ready to go. And by the time we're ready to go, you know, all the giant labs beat us to the punch because, of course, they have the facilities and the money and the postdocs to do it. Um, but we kept going. And with our background in HSV research and our ability to take apart uh, other bits of the nervous system, that's exactly what we did. And looking at the olfactory sensory neurons uh, and the olfactory bulb is the obvious target and it's low-hanging fruit uh, to go for. And people found the virus and the olfactory sensory neurons and the olfactory bulb, and they kind of just left it at that. And that's been the end of it. So we ended up looking at other um, innervations of the head and the neck. So the trigeminal nerve, which innervates the the nasal septum, the superior cervical ganglia, which innervates the salivary glands and the blood vessels of the head, neck and brain. Um, We even looked distally. So we looked at the dorsal root ganglia. So these little clusters of of neurons at the base of your spine that integrate sensory information from your periphery. We looked at the spinal cord itself. And then we looked at the brain. but not in the way that others have a lot of people just kind of mush the brain up as a smoothie and then do PCR on it and go, Oh, look, no virus. And I was like, well, the brain is not quite a, as homogeneous as you might think. So we dissected out individual brain regions and then went with it. So again, we, we pulled out, um, you know, QPCR for viral RNA. We pulled out immunofluorescence for tissue samples. We pulled out plaque assays because QPCR is great, but RNA is RNA. It doesn't mean it's an infectious virus, right? So we went through all that work and found, um, surprisingly, I thought, I think that this virus is able to invade the central and peripheral nervous system of these um, human ACE2 mice, but also wild type mice rapidly after infection, like within 18 hours of infection, you can pick up virus transiting through the brain and not just through the olfactory bulb, um, which I thought would be the case but I thought it would take much more time. So it's impressive that this gets into the nervous system so quickly and it gets into the nervous system before you ever see the rainier. So the blood can certainly see the infection, but it takes time. And that then, of course, he to the question of, well, if it gets into the brain, the nervous system before it gets into the blood um, and it's getting into the nervous system of these mice that are wild type that don't have the human ACE2, well, then are there other factors that might allow neuronal entry? So we did some brief inhibitor studies um, looking at Neuropilin-1. And we found that if you inhibit Neuropilin-1, you can drastically reduce viral RNA levels um, across the ganglia that we looked at. So in the trigeminal ganglia, the superior cervical ganglia, and even the dorsal root ganglia, which how the virus makes it into the ganglia at the the sides of your spine that are nowhere near your nose is interesting. so we wrapped all that up in a pretty little bow, uh, made an abstract out of it, and ASV was kind enough to accept it and invite me for a talk uh, to give that. So um, I'll be presenting this research at ASV. Um, as a matter of fact, there'll also be someone from my lab presenting on SARS-CoV-2 on food. That'll be our host, Doc Mo, And uh, my PI, Dr. Berkey, will be presenting some HSV work at ASV. So it'll be a Berkey lab excursion if you want to look this up for free. Um, Then if you're even interested in the the work that I'll be presenting, it's um, pre-printed on BioArchive. So you can just search my name or or just search um, SARS-CoV-2 rapidly invades the central and peripheral nervous system of mice and give it a read, see what you think. Um, We're currently waiting for reviews. I think we're in week four, although it feels like forever. So we'll see.
0: Wow, that's, that's exciting. So it sounds like the, the, the pandemic actually had a big effect on you professionally, sort of redirecting what you were studying in your PhD. How did it affect you personally? What was it like to be going through the pandemic in the early stages of your graduate career?
1: Great question. And you're right. It, it has completely reshaped my PhD. Uh, my academic life seems to be reshaped by the people that I meet, from Dr. Anderson letting me work in his lab to Dr. Burke letting me work in her lab and telling me that I should get a PhD um, life interceded and said, all right, you're going to refocus your PhD on SARS-CoV-2. And personally, it's just an interesting time to be a virologist, right? Like I find people don't really listen to what scientists have to say, at least not for very long, like invite a scientist to a party. Let someone ask you what you do. You probably get about 30 seconds before their eyes glaze over and it hurts my soul. (laughs) But if, it, it makes you really good at giving elevator pitches right and in this moment in this time people listen and i have tons of my friends tons of my former students that i've taught before um would come to me with like you know what i don't know what's right you know i see this in the news i see this on facebook i see this on tiktok i see this on twitter i don't know what's right what should i do and i was like well this is exactly what we've trained for our entire lives as virologists or to be the point people when these things happen and it was kind of being like the, the, just the, the Oracle of Delphi, if you will, like people would come and you just kind of start up what you think. And it was cool to be able to do that. And then to be able to direct people to like virology podcasts that I listen to. So like this week in virology, this podcast will kill you your podcast. As a matter of fact, and to be able to be that, that guiding source of proper and true information to people. Um, also um, I find that you don't, get a great deal of the history of science taught to you as you go through undergrad, you get a little more in grad school, but you don't really get a history of say virology, for instance, I would take that class in a heartbeat. Um, so you just have to fall down rabbit holes. of really greatly written books about plagues and pandemics in the past. And to have read about things that have happened, plagues and pandemics that have happened in the past and the way that humanity's dealt with it and to see it play on real time was surreal because like all of this has happened before and the roles are the same it's just the people playing them differ right like some pathogen causes a pandemic or an epidemic local officials are slow to react those who can flee do those who can't stay and then scientists and medical professionals rush in to develop tests and treatments and diagnose and then ultimately prevent the pathogen, the thing that was causing the pandemic, and then it gradually fades away. And then life goes back to normal and no one learns a lesson and we lather, rinse and repeat. Um, There was a fun riff on the old, um, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And then I heard an adaptation to that that says that, well, those that do are doomed to watch. And it was interesting to see that play out. So personally, it was just a, a validation of this is real, and it's valuable research. And we can, in fact, be voices of reason and logic in a sea of misinformation. And it's nice to see people reach out and have questions.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. Um, like I said, we look forward to your talk at ASV um, and uh, good luck with your research.
1: Yes, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you at ASV. So feel free to swing by and ask me all the questions you want.
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com.